trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, it's good to be back, and it's good to welcome my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos back to the program. Eric, we took a week off, but I trust nothing too interesting happened in that time. No, I, I did pick up a bug, uh, though I haven't had to be intubated or uh, given a given remdesivir. Uh, so once again, I, I feel confident that I'll survive. However, you know, I can't help. I even wrote about this. I, I could not help at the onset of this beginning to have these these hypochondriacal, paranoid thoughts that probably a lot of people have nowadays when they start to feel that tickle in the back of their throat and they wonder, oh no, could it be the Rona? Which we never used to do, of course, before all of this. No, I, I do it too. And, and you know, part of it's just like, all right, you know, I'm just trying to trying to be aware. Do I still have my sense of taste and smell and so forth? But, <laughs> but I, I will say this, I'm still grateful and will always be grateful that I have not taken the vaccine. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have operative immune systems um, almost fully recovered without having had to go to the hospital for anything uh, or get injected with anything. And that will be my process going forward. Well, one of the things that I wanted to touch base with you since we uh, didn't get a chance to talk last week, um, I'm not a beer drinker, but uh, but I got to get your take on on the whole Bud Light fiasco. That sure seemed like a really strange departure from their traditional all-American image to, uh, you know, now we're, now we're the, the inclusive light beer. Well, it's interesting to me in that it's kind of, um, what would I call this, woke poltroonery. Woke on the one hand, they are uh, fervid about pushing this agenda, the trans agenda, the LBGTQ plus XYZ PDQ thing and everything else, standing with Ukraine and all of that. So they'll uh, be very aggressive in pushing that. But uh, when it begins to manifest that doing it is going to cost them money, they seem to sound the retreat and go in exactly the opposite direction, which is what it appears that Bud is doing, Anheuser-Busch. I was reading a news story about it this morning. Now they're putting up um, beer displays in the supermarkets that are shaped like tanks, you know, and mm. rugged pictures of manly men and flags and all of that because they've, they've apparently been hemorrhaging money as a result of putting Dylan, whatever that person's name is, on the beer cans a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I now maybe I'm just cynical. I, I've got that way after the last few years, but um, it sure seems insincere to me. It, to me, this seems like a, a dog whistle. Well, we got to do something. Let's let's pump up the patriotism and show some mm-hmm. flags, have some 9-11 references, you know, that'll, you know, get people stirred again. But none of it feels authentic. Well, it isn't. You know, these people... Uh, they, they literally lick their index finger, they put it up, and they, they, they determine which way the wind is blowing, and that's the way they go. Uh, and we can see this uh, manifesting with the EV thing, too. All these corporate leaders, uh, and I use the term very very loosely, uh, feel that the wind is blowing in the direction of electrification, so they're all in on it. But just wait until the losses get to be unsustainable, and you'll find that all of a sudden it's going to be the, the same thing in reverse. Yeah, and, and in fact, I saw a, a, something that a friend had noted. Um, he said, spending an hour or so watching television is enough to recognize that advertising has actually mutated into a social engineering psyop. In other words, none of them yeah, are really exactly. about selling you a commercial product. They're about conditioning you to accept what you see on the screen as reality. 
Yeah, everything is now sub rosa and everything is political. It's no longer, uh, as in the happy-go-lucky days, just sort of a clever, funny little jingle and a cute little uh, character like uh, the Frito Bandito to mm. sell, the, sell you corn <laughs> chips or whatever. Uh, it, it's, as, as, you know, it's as you said, it, it's about somehow confecting this this ersatz virtual reality that somehow is supposed to conjure associations in your mind with whatever they're trying to sell you. We, we talk about this often. There's this Coke commercial. You've probably seen it, which is at best incidentally about Coke. It's like a series of, of line drawing images that slid across the screen. There's like a sort of a, a leather lady who gets on a motorcycle. And, you know, I don't know what they're trying to, to get you to think about here, but uh, it has about as, about as much to do with, with soda pop uh, as uh, these drugs they were pushing on people have to do with vaccines. Wow. Well, it's it makes me wonder if all the wokeness is starting to reach a tipping point. And, and if it is, I'm actually kind of glad to see that finally, you know, there, there are some Americans standing up and going, enough, stop it. Yeah, me too. You know, it, it, there, there is this built-in lag time, I think, between uh, the peak of something, of insanity, let's say, and uh, the, the backlash against that. And I think we may be on the, the beginning upside of the backlash against it. Of course, the downside is that that just increases the fractiousness and chaos that seems to be tearing this country apart. And the difficulty there is figuring out a way to restore some sense of, of sanity and normalcy in the midst of all this chaos. No, I, I, com- I completely agree. Um, it seems like... Uh Staying in touch with reality, or at least staying tethered to reality, that's kind of a full-time job, for at least for people who, who want to you know, be in charge of their own lives. If you want to, to maintain your autonomy, you've got to make a solid commitment to, to reality and then work at it to overcome all the efforts to separate you from it. Well, yeah, we have to practice due diligence every day, don't we? We can no longer trust anything that we hear coming out of the TV or the radio uh, because it's it's mostly disingenuous. It's largely bought and paid for by interests. And uh, there are all these agendas in play. And determining what the truth is and coming out with uh, you know a sound judgment about how you ought to feel about it or uh, what you ought to do about it is, a, is, as you say, it's a daily task these days. So um, speaking of reality, I'd love to get your take on uh, the story that broke last week, the, the young airman or Air National Guardsman who apparently leaked uh, sensitive documents that uh, cast some pretty serious doubts on the official narrative regarding what the U.S. is doing in and with Ukraine. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Is this a legit whistleblower or is this another psyop to justify further restrictions on uh, you know, in- the Internet? Well, it's really hard to know, isn't it? I mean, that's the problem. But we do know or at least what I think we, we can know, is that the operation in Ukraine is going extraordinarily poorly and becoming more rather than less dangerous. My understanding is that the, uh, the Ukrainians are just about out of cannon fodder, that the Russian forces have, have pretty much decimated everything that the Ukrainians have thrown at them and at this moment are poised to move forward. And they're not going to meet much resistance because there really isn't much means of providing resistance. And rather than having some sort of equitable, hey, let's come to the table and figure this out, maybe turn uh, what's left of rump Ukraine into a kind of uh, Eastern European Switzerland, a neutral country, you know, that's a buffer between Russia and, and the NATO countries. Instead of doing that, it appears to me that they're determined to escalate this, perhaps by, by bringing Poland into the mix and Polish troops into the mix. And, you know, that would be an extraordinarily alarming scenario for obvious reasons. Wow. 
Well, it's it's also very telling what uh, the response of the national press was, and, and I mean that in the sense of they they are <laughs> government affiliated or state affiliated media. They immediately uh, rallied behind. Let's figure out who this was, and, and how are you going to stop this from ever happening again? It's not about getting the truth to the public. It's about mm-hmm. uh, how can we better cover for those government lies. It's a measure of the degradation of the press in this country, which has lost its oppositional value. Not oppositional for its own sake, but oppositional in in the sense of uh, holding the government accountable. You and I can remember uh, the My Lai massacre uh, and how that came to the public's attention because it was reported on by the media at the time, which was the press at that time. I'm not a huge fan of the the media. Uh, And generally speaking, the public was appreciative of the fact that they got to know about what was going on. Uh, now, ever since they began to embed journalists with the, with the military, and ever since the, the, the media got co-opted by these corporations, they're just PR poodle flax. All they do is uh, re- recite from the teleprompter what they're told to recite, and instead of uh, exposing the news, they cover up the news. It's interesting, too, that uh, once they zeroed in on it, basically did the work of uh, these various government alphabet agencies in figuring out who the leaker was, now it appears, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, et al. are eagerly, you know, sharing some of the things that were leaked as as if they can take credit. Well, and look what else we've learned, you know. Yeah, what's this we stuff, pale face? Yeah, they're incredibly opportunistic. And another aspect of this that's interesting is that the, the mainstream press, so-called, is often accused of being left. And that's true, but the left is now the establishment. So we've got this weird situation uh, in which it's kind of a parody of what was the case, say, 60 years ago when uh, you had this solid conservative press that wanted to do everything to make sure that those hippie liberals didn't get you know, any, of the, any of the unpleasant facts about things that were going on out to the general public. Now the left uh, is in control of all of that. And the handful of legit journalists, a lot of whom are on the left, guys like Glenn Greenwald, have been practically excommunicated from the profession. Yeah, I, I have to say Glenn Greenwald is one of the more trusted voices out there, precisely mm-hmm. because he's been excommunicated from, uh, you know, the cult that uh, mainstream media has become. Yes, exactly. And again, it's almost an axiom that if a, a given journalist is under attack, uh, it, it, it's probably a good bet that it's because he's, he's telling the truth. All right. Well, hold that thought. We're going to come back and continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. If you check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you'll find a link right to Eric's website. Stay with us. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, you've had a number of great columns lately. Actually, they're all worth reading, but one in particular really jumped out at me because you you used a line from possibly one of the greatest Westerns ever done, that being the outlaw Josie Wales. Mm -hmm. Captain Redlegs, doing right ain't got no end. Uh, First Mm -hmm. of all, set the stage for us and tell us just a little bit about where that quote comes into play, and then let's, let's liken it to our situation today. Well, of course, the movie uh, is about a, a man, Josie Wales, who gets caught up in the maelstrom of the Civil War. And the character uh, that says that is this uh, bushwhacking Union cavalry officer who embodies this, this, this puritanical mindset that uh, we in the South often refer to as Yankeeism. 
you know, this, this idea of constantly improving everything from their point of view with the barrel of a gun, no matter how many people have to be killed in the process. Uh, so the, the, he's, the character in the movie says, doing right ain't got no end. And that nicely, I think, encapsulates the attitude, which is a, a religious mania that goes back to Europe and Torquemada and the Inquisition. Um, and it, it is a frightening one when you come to grips with it. And I think the movie does a really good job of portraying that in a way that people can readily understand. Well, something you pointed out as we were discussing this uh, before going on the air, um, one of the great things about that movie, what makes it such a classic, is it really encapsulates uh, some some great observations about the human condition. And, mm-hmm. and we see this very uh, very often, you know, in, in our modern day life, there are people absolutely driven by this notion that uh, there's no end to, to doing good, and they're willing mm-hmm. to, to bring the state to play, in other words, coercion into play to, to accomplish whatever it is they want. Yeah. In the movie, Josie's character, he's uh, just a simple farmer who's just wanting to farm and raise his family and be left alone. But uh, they won't leave him alone. And then there are other examples of that in the movie, too. There's a, a great meeting between Josie Wales and the leader of an Indian tribe, Ten Bears. And it's the same thing. The Indians just want to be left alone, but they won't leave them alone either. And they, the two of them have a great meeting of the minds because they recognize kindred spirits and that they each just want to live and let live. And that really resonated for me when I saw that movie, which was like when I was 10 years old. And it was, I think, one of the, one of the things that helped to propel me on toward a conscious libertarian attitude in life. No, I, I hear you. And and it takes so many different forms. I mean, specifically, you talk about, for instance, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency and, and how it mm-hmm. came into existence and, and how it, I, I'm sure there were good intentions, but uh, those good intentions have morphed into something very different now 50 years down the road. Well, yeah, the, that was what the article got into in terms of, you know, once I mentioned the movie to set the whole thing up, the mission of the EPA fundamentally when it came into existence in 1970 was to address the problem, which was then real, of smog, which was the result largely of uncontrolled byproducts of combustion coming out of the tailpipe of cars. And reasonably, most people could look at that and say, yeah, there's a problem. We should fix it. Uh, Now, whether the EPA was the way to fix it, I don't know. But the point is there was a legitimate problem, and it was fixed. The thing with the EPA, though, is that like any other bureaucracy, once it solves a problem, it doesn't just say, hey, mission accomplished. Clap each other on the back and Uh, let's disband and do something else. A new mission has to be found, even if there isn't one. So they have to make things up. And that's why they came up with this boogeyman of of CO2 and climate change. And there was an interesting exchange. You may have caught it. I actually pulled a clip and have it on the site with that article uh, in Congress, where a congressman asked a, a number of these climate change people if they knew what the percentage of the air in the that we breathe in the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. You know, that's a fundamental basic point about this whole issue. If you're going to talk about it intelligently, none of them knew the answer. And they all guessed in the order of five to seven percent of the air is carbon dioxide. And it was pointed out to them that it's about point oh four percent. Wow. Huh. Gee, you, would, you know, and, you think and there'd be some consensus on that, right? <laughs> you would think. Well, you would think that they would that with that point would be acknowledged and and that they would say, you know, boy, I wasn't aware of that. Or actually take a step back farther. You know, we're being told there's this existential crisis, and yet the basis for this claim rests on this completely erroneous, exaggerated notion of how much CO2 is in the atmosphere and how much it more is being put into it by us, and is that actually a real problem? I came across another very interesting little fact, which was that around, oh, I guess, what is it, between five and thousand, five. 
five and nine thousand years ago. Now, this is the IPCC, uh, their own uh, data and their agreement that there was this period during the last ice age when temperatures were actually about one degree warmer than they are right now, uh, and they call that the Holocene optimum. You can look up, you can look this up. It's rather interesting, and they called it the optimum. Now we're being told by these same climate people that an increase of one degree is somehow going to trigger a catastrophic scenario. It doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and Biden was stumping on this last week about, you know, we're running out of time. You know, climate change is real. Now, I have to I have to give credit. Last week, Biden, much to my surprise, did sign the uh, House uh, joint resolution that ended the COVID emergency. And I'm, I'm pleased to tell you this, Eric, the, the hospital... Mm-hmm that I've been, been having so much grief with in, in my locality yeah. that's been trying to force the mask wearing, finally lifted their mask mandate. So I can take my mom to the doctor and not have to worry about being badgered and harassed by the mask enforcers. Yeah, for now, though, but the fact is that at the stroke of a pen, they could reinstitute that emergency, and you know that they will. So, you know, I take comfort, in, not much comfort in that, as it being uh, simply a momentary pause before they decide to kick it up again. Um, and, you know, with regard to this climate thing, here we have a gag with people who have been proved wrong every single time. They have a 100 percent failure rate in terms of the predictions that they've made over the course of the last 50 years about the imminence of first. It was uh, the next ice age, which is going to rapidly descend on us. There's a great Leonard Nimoy special. And remember, in search of you could look this up. Oh, yeah. It came out around 1975. And if you're old enough to remember it, they were talking about how we're all going to freeze to death. Um then that narrative shifted in the 90s to global warming. That's what they used to call it. And we're all going to fry to death. When that didn't uh, pan out, they had to shift the verbiage again. And now, of course, it's climate change. And the beauty of climate change is anything can be put under the rubric of climate change. And at what point do we stand up and say, you know, wait a minute, you, you know, you're, you're a shyster. Everything you've said has been uh, has been wrong. Why should we pay any attention to what you have to say? And why, uh, more more profoundly, ought we to commit to these 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 massive dislocations and changes in the way of life for the sake of some vague assertion that you're making about what might possibly happen in the future. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And and even, even with, uh, for instance, uh, some of the, uh, I'm just going to go here, the vaccine injuries that, that have arisen mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, you still have the director of the CDC out there stumping for, and don't forget to get your kids all vaccinated with these mRNA sure. vaccines. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's reality disconnect, and I think it's also something something worse than that, because a point arrives after which you can no longer, I think, uh, give them the benefit of the doubt and think, well, they're just incompetent or they're just uh, they're dumb. I, I think that they're malicious. I think that a lot of this is simply about furthering an agenda. Uh, it's a common thread running through so many things, ranging from what we experienced during the pandemic to this bums rush push to force everybody into an electric car. So we got one minute left here. Let's talk about mm-hmm. practical things we can do as individuals to to fortify or protect ourselves against this this push to to corner us in, into a place where there's mm-hmm. no freedom. Yeah, well, I think one of the key things is uh, diversification, if you will. Uh, and what I mean by that, I'll give you an example, is to have more than one way to heat your home, if possible. They're trying to hurt everybody and push everybody into an electric only situation where you have either a heat pump or baseboard or something like that. Uh, and if they turn off the power or if the power becomes unaffordable, you're going to freeze. Uh, and the same goes with regard to stovetops and such, you know, being able to cook food. It would be smart, I think, to have alternatives, to have a gas range. If you can do that, if you can fit your house with that, 
uh, or to put a wood stove insert if you have a fireplace. So that in a pinch, you could actually heat your house, not just have a cozy-looking fireplace, but actually heat your home with wood and even cook on the wood if you needed to. Hear, hear. Well, I, I'm grateful that I have uh, friends like you who are a good influence, and not just by word, but also by deed. Eric, uh, thanks for taking the time to visit with me today. Absolutely. All right, and again, I have a link to the website, ericpetersautos.com. You will find a wealth of information. By the way, if you're into things that, uh, that go, like uh, automotive things, motorcycles, and so forth, you'll find a lot of fun stuff to peruse there, and the comments in his articles are also very instructive. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And can I just say thank you for uh, for letting me speak, for letting me uh, bring what I hope is a message that adds clarity to your world or at least uh, gives you some perspective by which you can uh, then chart, you know, a, a better course. Not that I have all the answers, but man, I do my best on a daily basis to find people who have a pretty clear view of what's going on and and then uh, pass that along. You notice, uh, if, if you have been a longtime listener, you'll notice politics is not the bread and butter of what I talk about. I, I get it. It's interesting. There's a lot of, well, basically most mainstream coverage is politics, as if that is all that matters, and that's what everything is centered around. I think it's a part of life. It's one facet of life, but I also believe there's a lot more. And frankly, when it comes to things where our influence actually counts, politics is way down the list. I mean, it's it's Bronze Age technology. Which way will the spears point? Will it point at them or will it point at us? You know, and and it hasn't changed in five thousand years. Now, on the other hand, there are some things that uh, that are much closer to home, places where your influence is sorely needed and where it can be felt. That's the kind of stuff I gravitate towards. And for that, I'm very grateful for uh, mentors, some of whom I've never met, like Paul Rosenberg is one of them, who explain beautifully ways that we can improve the world starting right where we're standing that have real, by real I mean lasting impact, and that don't depend on a particular political outcome. I'll give you a for instance here. This is from his latest essay. When, when individuals make an effort to love one another as God commands, right? What are the two great commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. That can be a source of great beauty when you see people doing this. And frankly, I know it's hard to see because mass media really doesn't cover this. They're more interested in what's the worst thing that anybody did to another person today? Or what's the worst thing that somebody said about someone or to someone today? But when you look around you, you will find that those people who take seriously the two great commandments, you, know, you could even put it into the golden rule if you want to, It really makes life better, measurably better. But Paul Rosenberg is also a little bit of a realist here. He says, you know, love one another is very easy to say, but it's hard to do. In fact, he says, you hear it all the time, and while it's nice that it's said, people don't do it terribly well. He says it's a hard thing for them to hold in mind. They can get serious about it from time to time, and he says, and that's a good thing, but doing it consistently eludes most everyone. And so he says, I think this deserves a moment of our time, if nothing else, just to work through some of the hypocrisy. So he gives an example with an apology. He says, I don't like the way Christians are picked on these days. 
They become, especially in educated circles where people are supposed to know better, the perpetual targets of ridicule. It's ugly, and it's actually just a version of picking on the weak kid. That said, he says, I'm going to use Christians as as an example, not because they're worse at this than other people, but because their example makes this issue clear. So he says, I will proceed with my apologies in advance. He says, the New Testament has many profound passages on love, such as he that loves, he that loves knows God, but he that doesn't love doesn't know God. And this is my commandment that you love one another. Now he says, so as you might expect, Christians would be spending a lot of time and effort on loving one another as once upon a time they did. But there he says you would be mistaken. Where Christians actually spend their time is on the rightness of doctrines. Now, by any half-balanced scriptural standard, and he says especially by a Jesus standard, that's a bit crazy. Take, for example, this passage spoken by Jesus himself in the ultra-famous Sermon on the Mount. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do the things I've said? Now, Paul Rosenberg asks, could anything be more pointed and direct than that? He might as well have said, I don't give a hoot about what you call me. I want you to do the things I'm teaching. And yet Christianity, judging by its actions, cares far more about doctrine than it does about love. So the question is, why is this so? And he says there's a simple answer to that question. It's because it's so much easier. First of all, punishing the violation of norms is a moral delicacy. It feels good to point out the errors of others. It gives you the sheen of righteousness without having to risk calling yourself righteous. That's a pretty primitive thing, and he says it's very certainly a non-Jesus thing. In fact, it's a primate thing, but until you understand it, it feels good. More than that, he says, loving is hard. As soon as you attempt to do it, energy drainage warnings are triggered. Discussing doctrine is so much less demanding and more satisfying in the short term. Now, he says, in defense of Christians, at least they talk about it, and at least they make efforts to love one another. The mainstream culture has lost the art and discipline of loving almost altogether. Mostly, they pretend that their political power grabs are inspired by love, which they aren't. But isn't it interesting how they pretend? He's right. So what do we do? Well, Paul Rosenberg says what you need is to start loving one another, but he says, start small. If you go full bore, you'll wear yourself out. Loving is demanding. It's mega worth it in the, long, in the long run, but he says it's not for the lukewarm and it's not for posers. Loving in action is as real as it gets. So he says, here to get you started is my favorite exercise for loving. He says, go to a train station, a bus station, any place where you have people coming and going. Find a comfortable spot and watch the people. See them as individuals. Focus on them one at a time. Try to sense their desires and motives. Let yourself operate instinctively rather than methodically. Then, he says, think about how these people could have been, save for accidents of birth, people you would have loved. Look at a young man, for example. He could have been your brother in another life, or your father, or a friend. And he says, run this exercise on person after person. Look at them, try to sense their essence, empathize with them. In another circumstance, they might have been your beloved aunt or uncle, your child, your husband, your wife. He says, just do this and see where it leads you. Any amount of time is better than nothing, and more isn't better if it burns you out. And this is what he points out. He says, the longer you do this, the more you'll clean yourself on the inside. So he says, just start, just start and see how you feel about it in a year or two. 
I know I, I had the same excuse. Well, you know, I'm a busy guy and people depend on me to do things and I got to use my time. Why sitting around watching and trying to empathize with people? I don't know that I really have time for that. I completely understand. In fact, that was the very first excuse that le- leapt into my mind was, okay, that sounds nice, but I still think he's right. I think he actually has a really good point. And it's something that I, I intend to put to the test. I, I've been able to do this from time to time. And, and sometimes it's, you know, when I'm, when I'm stuck somewhere, like waiting for a flight or something, I'm sitting in the airport. And, and I've actually, I've, I've tried that approach and just wondered, you know, who is this person or, or you know, what, what would the circuit under different circumstances, you know, would this be a person that, uh, that would be a good friend, would be a family member. But there's definitely something that happens when you take that time to stop viewing everybody as, you know, either an adversary or as just, you know, some detached, uh, you know, part of the universe that has nothing to do with you. Some people are really good at this. I'm not. I would like to be better. But I, I agree with what Paul Rosenberg is saying here. If, if you really want to love one another, um, be prepared. It, it is heavy lifting. It is hard. It will test you. And, and probably the hardest test of all is, is when, you, uh, when you actually try to show love for somebody else. Like if you're trying to serve somebody else, you see someone in need. There's times they'll throw it right back in your face. I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I don't need you. And real love, I mean genuine, charitable love, won't get angry, won't get defensive, won't say, well, fine then, you know, to heck with you and, and march off, you know, in a huff. It'll be understanding. It'll be patient. It'll be long-suffering. You know, I'm not describing myself, by the way, in any sense. But that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of dis- discipline and depth of love that, uh, that we're talking about here. Probably something we could all work on. I just, I, I love Paul Rosenberg's insights because he addresses what I think are some of the root problems that are plaguing us today. And there's a lot of them. But never do I see him suggest, you know, if only we would adopt this party platform or elect this person or embrace this policy, you know, that would solve our problems. Everything he talks about comes back to what he, what he says here. What are you doing that cleans yourself on the inside? that puts you at peace. Because once a person has, has uh, settled on those things where they really have paid the price to know what is true, to know what they stand for, they don't have to prove it to other people. They don't have to own other people or beat them in order to feel good about themselves. Now, it's taken me a long time to, to pick up on that and to learn it, and I'm still in the process of trying to, to become a better practitioner of that. But I'm telling you with everything in my heart, I think that's the right way. And I think if you're, if you're determined to be a good influence in the world, that's the attitude you have to adopt. It's not about, uh, I've got to beat people into submission. It's more about, I have to be at peace with myself. And when I'm at peace with myself, other people will see that peace and will want to know, hey, what have you stumbled into here? What what do you know that I don't know? That's not because you're better than them. It's because you're bringing light to a situation that desperately needs more light. This is the Brian Hyde show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com. If you're into the shooting sports, that's a great place to check out. Lots of great daily specials. And TMCPNation.com. That's my friend John Harvey, host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. All right, three articles I want to share with you real quick. First one is from Robert E. Wright. Oh, I love this article. This is so good. You'll find it linked in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. When we hear people talk about democracy, and by the way, my gag reflex kicks in every time. Well, our democracy, our democracy is under, this is a threat to our democracy. Most people mean something different. They What they mean is the majority rules. Well, the majority wants this, and by gosh, we deserve to get it good and hard. But if we're talking about democracy in the sense of rule of, by, and for the people, okay, well, let's talk. Maybe, maybe that is something that is worth preserving or worth defending. And Robert Wright, in an article for the Washington Examiner, says we can save democracy by ending the government's compulsory monopoly. Just a couple quick excerpts, excerpts here. He says, if our goal truly is to support democracy or rule of, for, and by the people, We need to start by ending compulsory monopoly or government efforts to force citizens to use its services and only its services. When voluntary association and the ability to choose alternative services wither, citizens become subjects and democracy dies. I don't disagree with that. He says the American framers understood how important volunteerism was for a free society. They designed the first two inalienable rights of the Bill of Rights to ensure that the federal government could never monopolize expression, spirituality, hunting, or the legitimate use of force. The right to voluntarily associate to ameliorate social problems that governments will not or cannot efficiently address is also protected under the unfortunately underappreciated Ninth Amendment. Now, there's so much more to this, but it's a wonderful article and I hope you'll take, it, the, take the time to read it. You'll hear the word democracy slightly different once you do. But you'll also understand that uh, as long as there's compulsion, it's, it's not going to be you know, a virtuous or good society. Compulsion is always the enemy of virtue. In fact, I could recommend a great essay by Aberon Herbert about the right and wrongness of uh, moral compulsion by the state. All right, next article. Oh, this is a good one. This is a long article, so you probably should give yourself some time to read it. Tim Hartnett has a great article about uh, the one size, or I'm sorry, one side fits all approach of how mainstream media is is now reporting the news. They've reached this point where, oh, the stakes are too high to play fair anymore. We really, we can't afford to give you the other side. The Hunter Biden laptop is probably one of the big examples of this. But if you are, uh, if you miss the days when there was at least a pretense of fairness on the part of mainstream media, I think you'll really appreci- appreciate Tim Hartnett's article, and uh, and it'll make you much more discriminating in how you choose your information sources. In this case, discrimination is really a good thing. And finally, oh, this one's a great one. There comes a point where the departure from reality becomes a conscious embrace of evil, and James Howard Kunstler, looking at our situation, says it is time to call the exorcist. He starts with a quote from Gandhi. Remember that all through history there have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. 
Always. Kunstler says, you might be among those who have noticed that the people in authority in this country appear increasingly insane. It ought to be self-evident that this is deeply disturbing, but he says, I will explain any way to allay any residual mystification. In a sane human society, authority is granted to those who are trustworthy. People earn trust by demonstrating their allegiance to reality. Things generally work better when people, when the people running them maintain cordial relations with reality. Now you understand why so many things don't work in the USA. What more subtle minds are asking these days is, when does this insanity tip over into evil, especially the insanity evinced in our authority figures? How about when someone positively refutes reality in the act of doing harm? For instance, Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC. Ms. Walensky is, to, the, to this moment, still proffering mRNA COVID-19 vaccines for children, despite the reality that reams of evidence exist showing these products to be harmful, even deadly. And in particular, by the previously exacting standards of the CDC's sister agency, the FDA, which hold that just a few demonstrated injuries will lead to a drug being withdrawn from medical practice. Ms. W- Ms. Walensky, by the way, is a medical doctor. Now, Kunstler asks, is it possible that Ms. Walensky is unacquainted with the genuine news all over the Internet about mRNA injury and death? Right that hard to believe, that is, at odds with reality. If for some reason it escaped her attention, do you suppose that somebody among her 10,000-plus CDC employees might have alerted the director about all this? He says, I would suppose so. The unappetizing conclusion is that Rochelle Walensky, in her very important role as a national public health officer, has tripped over the line from insane to evil. He says, as a general rule, human societies give individuals and groups permission to act in certain ways. It is not obvious, for instance, that the deans and college presidents have issued blanket permission for students and faculty to mistreat invited speakers who purvey ideas contrary to the woke campus consensus, or that many big city mayors give permission to young people to create mayhem in the streets, steal from retail shops, even injure or kill other people. Hence, college no longer works to expose young adults to the reality of competing ideas, and the public realm in our cities is one big danger zone. The college deans and presidents do this knowingly, as do the big city mayors. When the predictable results manifest abused speakers and urban chaos, the people in authority do nothing to discipline those who act out. And so permission and granted to, and, and so permission is granted rather to get more of that behavior. After the injuries are committed, the same authority figures offer insincere rationalizations to excuse the entire insane permission-granting dynamic, thus revealing their complicity. In short, they lie, employing complex confabulations. That seems evil. The political left these days is determined to promote sexual confusion as a crucial component of the common good. Politicians, agency officials, corporate executives, the chiefs of NGOs and public interest organizations all support public demonstrations of ignoble and sinister sexual acts, often involving the inversion of sexual roles between male and female. In fact, he links to an interesting specimen posted Saturday, April 15th on Twitter. Now, if you object to this behavior you may be subject to extreme punishment, like loss of career. For transphobia, the left is taunting America with exhibitions like this. In fact, if you look at the tweet, if you follow it, you'll notice the child in the background at center. It's not clear that this is some sort of, is it not clear, he says, that this is some sort of insult to decency. 
The left wants the non-left to respond with acts of violence so that the left can proceed to disarm the non-left and prevent any opposition to the left's more serious plans to abolish personal liberty, such as a central bank digital currency that will monitor all your spending, punish you for your economic choices, and confiscate your earnings. The left does these things in the name, they say, of our democracy, but it's a lie, of course. Democracy is the last thing they really care about. They do it in the name of pushing everybody around because all they really care about is coercion and punishment applied with maximum sadism. One of the, here's one of the left's thought leaders expressing this ethos the other day. It's Robert Reich. The modern Republican Party is hurtling towards fascism. Now, Reich was the labor secretary in Bill Clinton's cabinet. He's a much-published author, including a recent book titled ominously, The Common Good. He's been a professor at Brandeis and at UC Berkeley. He's a bigwig among the left's authority figures. And his insistence that the non-left seeks to bring about a tyrannical marriage of corporate and government interests, in other words, fascism, is contrary to the reality that this is exactly the program currently carried out by his own Democratic Party. Look no further than the Twitter files and the censorship campaign of collusion between woked-up government agencies and woked-up social media executives who, by a more than 90% ratio, contributed campaign money to the Democratic Party. Robert Reich's party is against free speech. Democracy requires freedom of speech. That's why Madison, Hamilton, and the others put it in our Constitution. Robert Reich is a liar. He's against freedom of speech. Kunstler says the, that human religious lore has it the, the figure of Satan is the father of lies. Satan is the personification of evil. The political left and the vehicle it rides on, the Democratic Party, with phantom president Joe Biden in the driver's seat, has become the party of Satan. We are in the presence of evil. He says, call them psychopaths if you're more comfortable with that. But whether you are religious or not, it represents a force at war with reality. And it happens to be at war against the rest of us. You can't negotiate with it. It lies always and everywhere about everything. It must be vanquished. Now, that may swing a little religious for some folks' sensibilities, but I don't think he's wrong. And the more I see this this effort to invert reality, the more I think that observation that, uh, yep, the father of lies, this definitely seems to be... uh, his handiwork, or at least there's a dynamic that that would indicate that it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show.